have your Bibles with you, please open them to the Gospel of Luke. We are going to finish, believe it or not, chapter 9 this morning. It's remarkable. This is a long 62 verses in this chapter. We've been in this chapter for a while, actually a couple of months. It's incredible going through it verse by verse, one verse at a time, to discover the truth of God's Word. So I'm going to read the passage as is our pattern this morning, verses 57 to 62 in chapter 9 of Luke. Then I am going to pray one more time. And we are going to unpack the passage for this morning. So read with me, would you? As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury the dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my house, at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, once again, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Holy Spirit, for this word. Thank you for uh, inspiring Luke, the physician, the doctor, the historian, to, to record this orderly account and these stories and We just thank you that we get to read them and and we have your word preserved today and that we can learn the truth from it through you. And so we pray this morning, I pray that you would really encourage us as we hear from you and we understand what Jesus is saying to these three individuals in this text this morning. And I pray these things in his worthy name. Amen. So I... uh, in preparation for this, the Lord put something on my heart. Uh, I, I remember the day really, really well, um, despite the fact that it happened 45 years ago. Okay? Now, I know I don't look that old, but it, it, okay, I am. 45 years ago, and I remember it very well. I was 16 slash 17 years of age. I was in high school at St. Jean Brebeuf School in uh, the north part of Toronto, a Catholic private boys high school. Uh, I was in class working on probably the most painful project I'd ever worked on in my life. Right? It was painful because it was a project in English literature where we were required to, to uh, write a book of poetry. And it was to be poetry from various genres and styles of poetry, which I had no idea which they were. I knew there were limericks, right, because they were funny. And, so that's, and, so, and we were also supposed to do illustrations, either our own illustrations or cut-and-paste illustrations that were supposed to be about the meaning of the specific poem that was in our book. And so full disclosure um, to all of you, um, I, I was and I still am a terrible sketch artist. Um, I did have a marketing career and advertising and so forth, but it required me to have a ruler. <laughs> I can't draw a straight line, right? But secondly, English lit? No. You know, this was grade 11. This was not my thing. I, I, I was into three things in, in high school, and not necessarily in this order, but basically three things. Hockey, playing hockey, music, playing music, girls, <laughs> chasing, and, and those are the three things. When it came to school and English literature in particular, no, not really. I'm very thankful when I look back on it, and I have been for most of my adult life, for, for two, two teachers 
who, uh, who decided, they looked at this young man who, who uh, apparently, all of my report cards said, you know, has potential, right? But, but it was happily not living up to it, right? Um, that's what my report card said. My mother go, why are you, you know, you're a B student, you should be an A, you know? Bs, I thought were good. But these two men really pressed into me. And, and, and they leaned in me, and basically they wanted to encourage me that, Glenn, like, Glenn, you really do have potential, but you're not using it. And secondly, you know, you need to study in school because, listen, the, the, the world that you're about to enter is not going to be easy, buddy. It's not going to be like high school. It's going to be pretty tough. In the case of my English teacher, whose name is E.J. Berry, uh, he helped me turn a very important corner. One day uh, in class, while we were working on our project, he started walking up and down the aisles, and he stopped at my desk. He actually got down on one knee, and he was right beside the, the table that was my desk, and he leaned in, and I, I gathered he just wanted to talk to me and didn't want everybody else to hear, which was nice. And, and he was looking at uh, one of my sketches that was right beside one of my poems, and again, it was a terrible sketch. And, and he looked at it, I did the poem, and then he said, that's about you, isn't it? And I, I remember looking at him going, yeah, that's, that is. And the picture was, was a picture of me uh, with very long hair, you know, rock star, right? Shoulder length or longer. And, uh, but my, my face, I, I had eyes, but I had no pupils. And so it was just the white of the eyes, right? And then, then there was this line in my poem, and again, it's terrible, but, but I'm going to quote it, so please don't laugh at me. But the line in my poem was, and it was the key line, if mine eyes were not open, I would not expect you to enter. So here was this guy that was primarily known to be kind of the class clown, the goofball, you know, um, but was terribly insecure, terribly insecure. And that poem really meant something, and, and, and my teacher knew that. And he looked at me and he said, um, have you ever read any Robert Frost? And I said, no. And he goes, well, it's in our textbook for this year. You should look up a particular poem that he wrote that's called The Road Not Taken. Hmm. Um, you should read it, he said. And I did, and something about it actually spoke to me at that point in time in an incredible way, and, and it spoke to me for most of my adult life. I've always looked back on that, and obviously I'm talking about it 45 years later. The last stanza in his poem goes like this. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Now, i got to tell you, at that time, again, I wasn't into poetry. I wasn't into, you know, reading books and looking for the symbolism. You know, like, that, that just drove me nuts. But something spoke to me. I really felt that I got this. Maybe not what Frost was really getting at overall in this poem, but I'll tell you what it, it spoke to me. It said this to me. The easy road is not going to be as easy as it looks, Glenn. It's not going to be easy. No, the road to any kind of successful or happy life that's ahead of you is going to be harder. But in the end, it's going to be worth it. Now, I'm 16, 17 years of age, and I actually thought that. I can remember thinking that. Okay? So, so there, was, there was some hope for me. Five years later, I became a, a follower of Jesus. I was raised Catholic, but I was not a follower of Jesus. And five years later, I did. And I remember hearing a sermon at 23 years of age, and the sermon was about this particular passage that I want to put on screen for you, where Jesus said these words. He said these words, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And I'm thinking, did Robert Frost hear this? Because, like, there's got to be a connection, but it really, it really hit me. Like, I was like, wow, yeah. And, you know, what I really remember thinking when I heard the preacher, you know, quote this verse and say it, I thought, you know, besides the fact it's obviously about heaven and hell, you know, narrow gate, wide road, there's a decision to be made. Something else spoke to me, and it was this. Jesus is being brutally honest. He's being really honest. What he's saying is is really, really true. He was being honest that, listen, if you want to follow me, if you want to follow Christ, it wasn't going to be the easy road. No, it was going to be, it will be the road less traveled. Look around. It's the road less traveled. It was going to be the narrow gate. It was going to be difficult, but in the end, so worth it. So that's exactly what we're going to see today in this text, these three lined-up stories. Isn't that amazing? That's what we're going to see. Jesus is being brutally honest with these three men, we would assume, but we're not told. Well, one is a scribe in Matthew, so he's a guy. But he's going to be brutally honest. with Now, let me ask you Christians that are here, or even non, if you've maybe thought of this, but Christians in particular, how many times have you ever been, been told in, in Christian North American evangelism that what you need to do is you need to go out and, and tell people about the kingdom of God and tell about, about the love of God and about Jesus and, and, and hopefully lead them to faith in Christ? How many of you have been told them that you need to first of all tell them, hey, hey, listen, you really need to know what you're signing up for? You heard that? Because for an awful lot of years, I never heard that. What I heard instead is something called easy believism. Right? What I've heard is you just got to get someone to pray a prayer, you know, to respond to an altar call, right? To respond to the fact that, you know, God loves them and God is love. And you don't need to know anything else. Like the most important thing is you just you need to know that God loves you, that he wants to love you, and you need to believe in Jesus and, and like... Check the box. Sign up. That's kind of what I've seen in our North American culture and in evangelism. It's not been about spelling it out, that this is not going to be easy. Understand what you're signing up for. I want to hopefully help you see today that that is exactly what Jesus is saying. And that is, I think, for those of us who've been down this road for a while, this road less traveled for a while, we've come to experience. It's not easy, but it's worth it. Isn't it? It is. So now I'm sure if you have your Bibles open, for those of you who are really, really... (laughs) Okay, if you have your Bibles open, you're going to see that there's a title at the top of this passage, right, that that has been put in there by the translators or by the commentators. It's not in the original language, and the title is usually this, The Cost of Discipleship. It's a good title, but I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to use it today because I want to suggest to you that, yes, there's a cost to following any worldview, any way of life where you're hoping that it'll work out for the best. There's a cost for anything that we do. And I see that, but I really, I'm hoping that we will see this today, that the title should be this. And I'll unpack it this way for you this morning, I hope. The title is The Road Less Traveled. And I'm hoping today we're going to see three things, the three different stories that line up here. We're going to learn about the idol of comfort, the idol of self-sufficiency, and the idol of home. 
<laughs> this will be fun. <clears throat> Number one, the idol of comfort. Let me reread the past, those verses for you. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, there was a point that I didn't get to make last week because of time. It went very long. Um, but it is this. Um, Luke, Luke says that he's writing, you know, we know from the beginning that he's writing this orderly account for his dear friend um, Theophilus. But one thing we must understand that Luke is not writing a chronological Account. So th- these things are not in necessarily in order. Last week we th- saw three different stories that were talking about the seed of pride um, uh, that, that, that births unbelief or uncertainty. And those three stories uh, don't necessarily follow each other chronologically. And the three today, not necessarily. We don't know for sure, but not likely based on other gospel records. So that's an important thing for us to just know because sometimes there are questions about the Bible and that's one that sometimes people see. So after last week's three stories about the apostles arguing, first of all, over who was the greatest, followed by John telling Jesus about the guy who was casting out demons in Jesus' name and their attempts to stop him, to James and John asking Jesus if he wanted them to call down fire on these Samaritans, right, for being dismissive of Jesus. This, for Luke and other gospel writers, what he's doing today is really a literary tool. And it's not about going from event to event, really, but from subject, one subject to another. So let's first of all look at what the subject here is in the passage, right? Again, I studied English literature. And the good news is I graduated, you know? That's amazing. And I picked up a love for the word thanks to that teacher. But the subject of the passage is clear. Follow. It's repeated in every story and on a consistent basis. It's about follow. And it's about following Jesus. And what we also need to see is that, and I don't like to get geeky-greeky with you, but the the word that's used here in the Greek is the present, present perfect tense, meaning it's perpetual. It's not like, follow me today, and then, hey, if you want to take a break, that's okay. No, it's like, today, tomorrow, next week, next month, the rest of your life, follow on following me, is the tense that Jesus is using. I mean, he's already been very clear about this in verse 23, a few earlier, which I'll put on screen for you, where he said this. He said, if anyone would come after me, follow on after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, daily, and follow me. Now, oftentimes people look at that verse and they get, they get the cross bit and they go, oh, you know, following Jesus, okay, oh, that should suggest to you that it's going to be hard, right? But, you know, it's this cross thing again, you know, about denying myself and all. There seems to be this negativity. No, not really. What Jesus is getting at really possibly is this, is that, listen, whether you're a Christian believer here today or not, you're bearing a cross, The question is, are you bearing it on your own? Are you bearing it with Jesus? My yoke is what? Easy. My burden is light. He walks with us. We don't just follow on with him, but he walks with us carrying our cross. So the subject is follow. And now we got this guy. This guy shows up, like out of the blue, it appears. And and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. (laughs) Like, you ever said that to somebody? You know, did you say that to Jesus? When you came to faith in him, I'll follow you wherever you go. I wonder about the apostles at times, right? So that, that's interesting. He, he's basically saying, I will follow you anywhere, 
right? I mean, is there any other way to take what he's saying? I don't think so. I think that's what he's suggesting. But then the question might be, where does he think Jesus is going anyway? Because, like, that's a pretty bold statement. It doesn't matter where you're going, you know. Hey, listen, if you, if you're going, if you want me to go live in uh, Winnipeg, <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, Winnipeg, if you're watching online, that's awesome. Um, but you know, anywhere. Yeah. Where does he think Jesus is going? Or is, is he just excited because he's been following Jesus for a while and it's like, this guy's amazing. Like he feeds 5,000 people. He preaches amazing sermons. He's talking about this kingdom thing. It's going to be pretty cool. And like, okay, so wherever he's going, he's going to be king. I want to follow him. And so he makes this bold statement. He just comes. So we, we really don't know from the text what motivates this man to say what he just said. But we do learn something about his motivation from Jesus' response, don't we? And that's really the important part of the story. So look how Luke presents it. Without hesitation, Jesus says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So simply put, Jesus is saying, look, foxes have homes. Birds have homes. I'm homeless. Still want to follow me? My guys, are, they're homeless. We rely constantly on the generosity and the hospitality of others. Still in? Ready to go to Winnipeg? Wherever I'm going, wherever that might be. So the man would have heard you, and I'm sure I should hear, as I just said, you still want to follow me wherever I'm going? If you want to follow me? So, so what's Jesus getting at? I mean, I, I look at that and I go, what's he really getting at? Well, let's remember this once again. Jesus has demonstrated more than once already in the Gospel of Luke, but many times in the Gospels, all the Gospels, that um, he, he, he knows not only our thoughts, what we're thinking, then and now, <laughs> this instant, but he knows our hearts. He knows our motivation that's behind our thoughts. And so he knows this man. And he knows that this man has a heart issue. So he's revealing to this man and to us that this man's heart issue is comfort. I I know what you're thinking. I I know you're thinking that I'm going to be king, so that means wherever we're going to go, we're going to be like in five-star Airbnbs, right? That's where we're going to be staying, like... It's going to be awesome. I'm going to feed 5,000 every day. It's going to be sushi. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be really, really good. I think he might be thinking some of these things. So we all know, listen, it's true, that Jesus didn't own his own home, that he lived a very simple life without any of the comforts that most of us today take for granted. And most of his disciples who followed him for 3.5 years in total lived the exact same way, exactly the same way. So we must conclude that Jesus is being very, very honest to this man. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing. It's not going to be an easy road, but it's going to be worth it. I'm the son of God. I will provide for you, look after you, what you need. Still following me? Still coming along? 
So in Matthew's record of this person, he tells us he's a scribe and that he's been following Jesus for a bit. And in the previous 10 uh, to 12 verses in Matthew, uh, Jesus is performing all these miracles, as I've alluded to, many miracles. So maybe, as I said, this man is simply reacting in an emotional way, you know, just after one great sermon or, or the feeding of 5,000 miracle. And, he, and, he's, and he's basically saying, okay, now I'm in. That was amazing. You keep that up and I'm, I'm in. Well, again, we don't know for sure because it doesn't say what he's thinking, but we, we do know what Jesus responds with. Jesus is being honest with him. He's saying that the truth is, the truth is, and he's saying this to each one of these individuals, you must want me. You must want me more and in my plan for your life more than comfort in this life. So, so please hear me when I say this, please, because sometimes people don't, they hear this and they go, oh, <laughs> again, bearing my cross. It, this is not to say that you won't have comfort and pleasure and good things in your life following Jesus. It's not to say that at all, but it is to say that we, 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 we can't make that our idol. And, and, and what he's getting at with this man is, is he's saying, look, following me will not ensure comfort. It will not ensure ease and wealth. Look at my life. That's not how it went. Come after me. I rose from the dead. I will rise you from the dead. Make you spiritually alive. So let me ask you, when you consider how comfort and how our desire for comfort can keep us from, from the life that Jesus has called it to the planet, can you see in your own life today, Christian, the, the narrow gate and the wide road? I mean, isn't the attraction? I mean, it is for me. In, in my business life, it was like, okay, I want to go to church, uh, but I want to keep working because, you know what? <coughs> Excuse me. I want that new car. It's comfortable. I, I, I want that vacation to the sun because I need... I need some comfort right now. Good things, not horrible things, but my motivation can be taken in that direction, the wide road versus the narrow gate. So what does everyone in our culture and our world today want? Come on. TGIF. Enough of work. I want some fun. I want some relaxation. I want comfort. It's, Jesus knows this. He knows this. And so really, as I've already said, he, it's about wanting him more than any of these things, not that they're bad. What are some of the ways uh, in which you and I seek comfort? And, and, and hear me again, seek comfort more than Jesus. Well, again, I, I, I confess up until the age of 45, 40 years of age, uh, money. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I've got fire insurance. Yeah, I go to church a couple times a month, maybe. You know, I read my Bible sort of. And, and, uh, but, you know, I got to make more money because that money is going to, it's going to give me comfort, right? It's going to give me comfort. It's going to provide for me the comfort that I want in my life. Money, house and home. I love our house. Do you love your house? If you have one, your, your rented space and you make it into a home and it's comfortable, right? Food, exercise, career, alcohol, medication, when things are not going well, we seek comfort. So please hear me when I say this, and this is from my own personal experience and confession. All of these things, which many of which are good, if made into an ultimate thing and for our comfort, they will eventually fail you. 
They have failed me, and they will fail you. So um, he's being honest with you. We don't hear what happens with this man, but one can assume he doesn't follow. One can assume that. And so we go on to point number two, the idol of self-sufficiency. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, Yes, this is the one. There you go. So it's interesting here. The first and the third are ones who come to Jesus and say, I will follow you. This is the one where Jesus calls him to follow me. And it's in exactly the same way that he, he called Peter and Andrew, James and John. Hey, you guys, follow me. Follow me. This is a personal invitation from Jesus to come and follow him. It's, it's significant. And, and it's, it's different for that reason. And so this person whom Jesus calls is exactly uh, like he called his apostles. He does the inviting. And, and again, you've got to love Jesus' response, right? No? <laughs> I mean, that first part's a bit harsh, isn't it? That sounds really, really harsh. second part is encouraging. But that first part. So at first blush, you might think this man's father was already dead. But that's not true. That's actually not true. Jewish custom surrounding death, burial, and mourning was was very specific. First, the body was prepared and buried as soon as possible. Jesus was crucified, taken down, prepared basically because it was the the Passover, the Sabbath, and, and then put in the tomb. Then there's a 30-day period of, of mourning, um, of um, celebration really, but also of mourning. And then there's like a year-long process uh, of where the family is basically putting the estate to rest. And things are getting settled within the estate. And so it would have been appropriate, truthfully, if this man was really wanting to go bury his father, that he wouldn't be where Jesus is at this moment. He would be home at least for that 30-day period. And so what's going on here when we hear this? But Jesus knows. Listen, he knows something is not quite kosher here. See what I did there? Kosher? Never mind. <laughs> Even to this day in Middle Eastern culture, uh, the phrase, bury my father, uh, literally means this. I, I need to stick around to both look after my ailing father or mother until they die and settle the estate. Like, like that, that's a colloquial, colloquial saying in Middle Eastern culture is, yeah, I need to bury my father, which means, yeah, I, I can't really move or do anything else with my life right now because I have this responsibility to my mother and to my father. So that's a good thing. And secondly, maybe this guy has heard about, again, the scribe who's been following or, was, you know, was, said he wanted to follow Jesus. Um, and, and maybe he heard about the fact that there was going to be no home, no money, no Airbnbs, five-star, none of that. And so, so maybe this guy is thinking, well, I'd better go and I, I better stay home long enough to at least get that inheritance so I can at least, when times get tough on the road with Jesus, I can provide for myself. And, and maybe the rest of the guys too. Like, you know, I could put them all up in Airbnbs, right? Because I, I will have the estate. And maybe, maybe that's part of his motivation. Maybe that's what he's thinking. Jesus' response is very direct. Leave the dead to bury the dead. 
But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And as I've already suggested, it sounds pretty harsh. In that culture in that day, it would have sounded actually even more harsh to their ears, to their understanding. I think it would have been more harsh. So again, remember Jesus knows his heart. He knows his motivation, uh, that it's all wrong. And he's essentially saying this. Listen, I'm calling you to follow me, the Messiah, the King, who's going to give you life. I'm calling you to that. Not just to be a learner, a disciple, but to be a believer in me. Therefore, literally, Jesus is saying this. Let the spiritually dead bury the spiritually dead. As for you, go and tell the spiritually dead about the kingdom of God so they can become spiritually alive. It's actually a positive and encouraging thing, but we could read it wrongly. So this man suffered not only, not so much from the need for comfort, right? Although that's kind of still part of it. No, he he suffered from um, the need for material wealth and self-sufficiency more than anything else. Now, I've told many of you about this before, about my own personal life. Like, I, okay, that, that Robert Frost poem was great, right? I became a Christian at 23 years of age, got into the world of marketing and business, and, and, and really was driven. Uh, I made a bold prediction to my mother-in-law, because I was going to take care of my wife and my kids, that I was going to become a millionaire by the time I was 40. So, you know, I read every self-help motivation book on the planet, and I got, I got to work. And, and you know what? I had a chain of stereo stores, a bunch of successes. Things were going pretty good. And, and then, you know, people in my church would be like, hey, you know, so are you going to be here more often? Or, hey, listen, are you going to start giving? <laughs> Maybe financially? And, and you know what? In my mind and my heart was, my mind was actually this. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so one day I will. And, and you just wait. Like, when I'm 40 and my bank account is like a bunch of numbers and zeros, like, you watch how much I give then. Now, I didn't actually put it that way, but that was actually my mindset. And so I realized after 17 years of following Christ, I wasn't really following. This one, this was me. The idol of self-sufficiency. I, I, I believed in that, like, well, I come out of a self-made man. I, got, I need to provide for myself. Like, look what everybody else is doing. I can do this. But one day, one day, well, at 40 years of age, like, came crashing down, and thanks to my wife I, and the Holy Spirit, I woke up. Point number three, the idol of home. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So finally, another person says, I will follow you. Just, just, he just offers it, right? Jesus doesn't ask him. He just offers that I'm going to follow you. But he too has a but, right? Same as the first guy. He's got a but right there. He, he just wants to go home to mummy and say his goodbyes. You know, little tassel strings are a bit short with this guy, I think, maybe. Or, or once again, we don't learn a lot from what he says about his motivation, but Jesus's response does tell us, or at least gives us some clues. I mean, you could hear his response. I think, again, Jesus is being kind of harsh or unkind. I mean, the scripture does teach, and good Jewish boys would know this, that you're supposed to honor your mother and your father, right? So like, hey, this seems a little out of line, Jesus. Well, not really. As with the others, we're not exactly sure what this man is thinking. And he's not uh, asked by Jesus to follow him like the previous man. He just, he just volunteers it. 
And so maybe he's thinking this, okay, look, clearly this Jesus is serious. He's honest. So I want to follow him. I really do want to follow him, but there's just this one thing that I need to do first. Just one thing. I want to honor my mother and father. I want to go say goodbye. Like, I'm going to go, right? I'm going to go do this amazing thing and follow this amazing guy. But again, Jesus knows his heart. He also knows that, again, he has a heart issue, therefore. And Jesus says, no one who puts, look at this, his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is not quoting scripture here or the Old Testament. Luke would have really picked up on this. He's quoting a Greek proverb. It's amazing. Jesus is contextualizing this. And he's quoting a Greek proverb that basically meant this. You can plow a field or a furrow, but you can't do it if you're looking backwards. Meaning, you can't be double-minded if you're going to follow me. And so that's what Jesus was getting at here. And so Jesus is making it clear to this man, you must, again, just like the others, you must put, must put me, my mission, and my kingdom first, and that may mean leaving your family behind. You okay with that? Remember the time when Jesus is like preaching in the house and his mom and his brothers are outside and they're worried about him, right? And they're like, because people are talking about killing him, right? And, and, and he hasn't eaten in a while, maybe she's thinking. And they send in a messenger to go in and talk to Jesus and say, hey, your, your parents are outside, your mom's outside, and your brothers and sisters are outside. They want, they want you to go be with them. What does Jesus say? You remember. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? These people are my brothers and my sisters. This is my family. He's not dishing his mother or his brothers and sisters, but he's making it very clear. Those who believe in me and follow my word, those are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. So two ways that works for us here today. Our blood family ties are a good thing. Amen? Well, some of you are going to be quickly go, yeah, mom and dad are awesome. Some of you are like, well... (laughs) You don't know about my upbringing. Had a mom, didn't have a dad. I can go many different ways, right? So we must be careful. But in most cases, it's a good thing. And that said, in our North American culture, I believe it's been taking that we've taken that good thing, and in so many ways, we've turned it into an ultimate thing. Again, I know some of you get tired of me talking about my marketing life, but I studied a lot of philosophy and psychology because most marketers, what they're trying to do is they're trying to motivate you to do and buy things that you don't really need, but they want to create a want. And so the the, the nuclear family, the bloodline family, can be turned into an idol. It has happened. Probably not to any of you, but it does happen. Secondly, and and, and I want to suggest that actually on that point, that what happens in the church is your blood-bought family, please think about that, is in a lower position and status in your mind and in your life than your bloodline family. That's not what Jesus saved you to be part of, but... So that's part, part, partly one of the things that's going on here. Secondly, I'm not sure if you've ever seen this, but I have a few times in my life. I've seen people, mostly younger, but sometimes older, and, and they, you know, like they, 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 uh, they go to a, a retreat uh, uh, or they hear a sermon and, and they get all jacked up and fired up. Our missionary comes back, right, and talks about a, being in the mission field and doing all these things, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, 
I, I want to give my life to Jesus in that way, too. I, I want to, like, go all in. I want to go to YWAM. I want to go to, you know, Winnipeg. I want to go to Borneo, wherever it might be, right? I want to be all in. And they go home excited to tell mom and dad and family. And, and yeah, I don't want to go to university right now, but I want to do that. And what do they get from their family? Oh, that might not be a good idea. Have you ever heard that? Seen that? I have. I kind of felt that way with one of our sons at one point in time. I really do think that that can be a problem for some of us. And so let's be careful as we commit to continuing following Jesus, not to make our home of birth or our nuclear family home an idol by placing it above Jesus, his church, and his mission. It's a good thing. Please hear me. These are good things. And as I like to quote Tim Keller, any the biggest problem we have with idols is that we take good things and make them into ultimate things, things that are beyond and more important than Christ, and they shouldn't be in that place. So when we began this morning, I said I didn't feel that the title uh, should be the cost of discipleship. You agree with me at this point? I, I, I think that's it's, it's a good title, but, I, but here's the thing. We have determined that the subject is following, right? That is certainly the subject. And so therefore, come on, it is about discipleship. Truly, that is what it's about, following on with Jesus. And so let's just quickly, in conclusion, let me unpack that for you and, and, and leave this with you as our application for today from this passage. Where do we get discipleship from? Well, we get it from Matthew 28, right? When Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make converts. Get them to check a box, pray a prayer, and then tell them good luck. <laughs> no! <laughs> Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and, and please remember this. I will be with you until the end of the age. This is an ongoing thing. And so, again, I was raised in the idea that the idea is when he says, go and make disciples, you've you got to you know, go to a Bible camp, preach a sermon, or, or work as a counselor, or whatever it is, and get someone to pray a prayer and commit, and then go home and say, we, we had 25 commitments. Do, do, should we do some follow-up with those people? Ah, oh, somebody else will do that. But, no. The idea is this. Discipleship is an ongoing process. And it's really what Jesus is getting at is he wants us to follow the same pattern that he did with his disciples. When he called people to follow him, he said, follow me, okay, let's get going. And he, and he stayed with them. And they stayed with him. And there was ongoing lessons and teaching and showing them what good ministry looked like day after day after day. And so the question is, are, are you on this mission? Are, are you doing this? I asked this a couple times a year for the last eight or nine years, and I know for some people it's like, oh, when's he going to stop asking this? Never. <laughs> I'll ask it again. Who's discipling you here today? Who is farther along in their walk with Christ, in their mission and journey with Jesus, who is discipling you today? And who are you discipling? This way and this way. I know most of you. That's a struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle. Many reasons. I'm currently, uh, and I know I'm your pastor, and I, get, I guess you probably think I get paid to do this, but I'm currently trying my best to disciple four to five men, and it's not easy. It's, you know, hey, guys, want to get together? And 
I, I can't do any more. If you need some names, if you'd like some names of people that need discipling, uh, you could talk to me afterwards because I think I know who they are. And if you're a person who um, wants to know about who you could disciple, I, I, could, I could give you some names. If you need to be discipled and want to be discipled, by, I, I, I could help you too with that. And your brothers and sisters in ministry can do this. And I think some of us are like, well, but I just don't know how to do it. Yes, you do. Yeah, actually, you really do. Every single one of us in this room is currently involved in being discipled and discipling relationships. You are. And you might say, well, how is that? Well, let me give a few examples. These are all good things. Don't anybody think I'm thinking of them individually, okay? Yoga. <laughs> Yoga is pretty, pretty, that's amazing, right? You go and there's an instructor and they're, they're discipling you and the things of yoga and the benefits of yoga. That's all really awesome. There are things like diets, right? There, there are personal trainers and workouts. There are cooking books and cooking shows and cooking clubs. There, there's tidying up with Marie Kondo. Anybody being discipled by Marie Kondo right now on Netflix? You bingers. Listen, half of North America is being discipled by her right now. It's true, right? Life coaches, business coaches, the list goes on in our self-help, self-ambition culture. And then look at this. Listen, you are being discipled by those who you're putting yourself under. And it's not bad, okay? Please don't hear me in the wrong way. But here's the other thing. You, too, are discipling. How? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, coffees. Hey, you, you, you got to watch this Netflix show, right? Like, we do it on a constant basis. So please, you know how to do it. Friends, this, this, is, this, is, this is what makes the Christian life so worth it, is being discipled and discipling someone else and seeing growth in yourself and in them. That's huge. Let me leave you uh, this morning with my own paraphrase of the last stanza from Robert Frost's poem that I, I pray will be yours. This is mine, okay? It's my own paraphrase of the end of that poem, and it goes like this. Jesus told me about two paths and which one to choose. And I, I chose and I continue to choose the narrow gate. And that has been and will be one day so worth it. Pray with me, would you?